Today's edition of the podcast is brought to you by CoachMe Plus. CoachMe Plus is the leader in athlete management software and a product that I've been lucky enough to be using for a little over a year now. Only rivaled by the impeccable customer service that Kevin and his staff provides, CoachMe Plus's ability to constantly be amoeba-like in their ability to mold and, and matriculate what you're trying to get across and bring together is, is absolutely fantastic. Their constant pursuit of better ways and better methods and, and innovations and progress to their own product is absolutely fantastic. Go over to CoachMePlus.com. Check out what they got, guys. It's, uh, it's something that I guarantee you won't be disappointed with. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Florida's Assistant Director of Strength and Conditioning, Matt Delancey. Guys, Matt and I are going to talk about culture and training and a bunch of awesome things that they got going on down there in Gainesville. We're going to start out talking about what's truly important when it comes to developing the culture within your teams and not just the teams, but also within developing that within your staffs and how the athlete fits into this picture as a as the underlying principle behind everything that they're doing. He then starts to talk about his assessments, you know, and how that leads into program development, what drives his exercise selection, and, you know, what he sees as important when we talk about how we evaluate ourselves and our role as strength and conditioning coaches within the team. It is really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Matt, thank you so much for being on with us today, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so listen, down there in Gainesville, you work with some really successful teams. Three teams that are really, really different. I think that something that could be cool to talk about is the cultures with those teams and how those three teams show up in the weight room and and some variations in culture and what you're doing with them. Because you're with volleyball, track and field, and swimming and diving, correct? That's correct. Yeah, three really different squads. So let's uh, let's talk about that and, and see where that goes. Okay, so it all starts with our head coaches. I mean, uh, our job, we can't do our job unless we have the support of our head coach. So, you know, Mary Wise with volleyball, Mike Holloway with track and field, and Greg Troy with swimming and diving have all set the standard for their, for their teams and – whether you're strength and conditioning coach, you're an assistant coach, you're an athletic trainer, I mean, our job is to help reinforce that culture standard on a daily basis. So I got, a lot of it starts with the coach, and then a lot of it obviously is the kids they recruit because you recruit bad kids, doesn't matter what your standard is, you're, it's, hard to, it's hard to keep that culture. So coaches set the standard, they recruit the right kids, and then we mold them and shape them in the direction we want them to go. So um, it's a lot of everybody. I mean, in terms of work habits, a lot of these kids have them coming in. They just need to be refined. So, No, and that's awesome. So then let's kind of touch upon the programming because you got two watch sports, right? You got – or distance with with the athletics kids and then the swimmers. But then, you know, the outlier being volleyball, who's been super-duper successful of late. So let's talk about how that workload kind of keeps you on your toes and, and moving forward that way. Um, well, swimming and diving and track and field and volleyball all have vertical jump components. 
So everything I everything I look at with these sports, first thing I look at is um, vertical jump development, and then we branch off from there. But um, and, I, and I think this is a blanket statement. I think it's important that people understand that it starts with the coach and the athlete. And at this level, if you don't have those, it doesn't matter what we do in our world. I know there are some strength coaches out there who think they're the number one priority of the program and that there's, my God, kid can't squat today and he get worried about it. For me, the way I operate on a daily basis is that we're not the first priority. You know, and if we are, the kid came to school for the wrong reason, probably. Because honestly, if you have academics and family and all that covered, first priority should be the sport. Then it should be strength and conditioning. I haven't seen it work well the other way around. So with that being said, you know, all I do when I get a new team, and I've worked with a lot of different teams, when I get a new team, I, I do a needs analysis. I look at common movements, common work, intervals, rest intervals, and then, and then common injuries. What are common dysfunctions? And I go from there. And then knowing all that, then each kid has an individual assessment that we look at and we just look for dysfunction and weakness. Um, I've been lucky to have a couple assistants that really buy into what I do. You know, recently, Jason Trailer, um, the kid's been with me for four years now, and um, he, he understands what we're looking for. And we've been able to train some interns every semester, usually about four that can help to a certain extent. So, and then I have athletic trainers that can also help, you know, all three of our athlete head athletic trainers for those sports, Randall Verb for volleyball, Tommy stitch for swimming and Andy clock for track. They all have, um, they come into the weight room and we're a team, we're a performance team. So, there's, there's a lot more than just m me in the equation with, with what's happening in the weight room. I just think that um, the more experienced eyes you can have in there, the better your programming will go. Oh, 100%. And I think that having the assistance of those people in your sports med department is so huge, piggybacking that with the, with the sport coaches. So let's go back to that, that assessment that you do. What are some things that you're looking at specifically differently in those three sports um, with the volleyball, the, the women's team, and then your, your track athletes, and then the swimmers? So volleyball and track are similar in what you're – for me, they're similar for what I'm looking for. I start with an overhead squat, and typically you see, you know, pronation or, or valgus, or you see some sort of, of – um, Round it back because they got really tight hamstrings because maybe their hip, their their um, glutes aren't functioning properly. So we're we're looking for that. We're looking for any kind of uh, upper cross syndrome or really tight shoulder. Um, so I mean the assessments aren't they're not. I I, I don't do anything difficult. I, I keep everything simple. So I look for the basics and then we go from there. And you know I start with an overhead squat and and this is the same for swimming. This dysfunction in swimming is different. They're, I'm looking for, typically they have overactive hip flexors, so they're overarching their back a lot when they come in. And they also have a lot of upper crust syndrome, so their shoulders are rounded off. And, but, but still, the assessments are universal in my world. I, I start with an overhead squat, and typically we look at four to five sets of five with a wooden dowel above their head. 
and we record on sheets as we go. And then we look at a, um, pressing snatch balance and then a snatch balance. And then once we've worked through that and then, and once, obviously once we get that initial assessment in, once we start progressing to like the pressing snatch balance and snatch balance, we're working, we're hitting stretches in between sets. We might be doing some sort of activation work between sets. Cause I'm looking after the overhead squat, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm looking to improve their movement throughout the snatch transfer series because the goal at the end of the snatch transfer series is to snatch a barbell properly. And I think, at least from my point of view, I think people have forgot where the overhead squat came from initially. You know, overhead squat comes from Olympic lifting. I mean, it was a, it's always been a developmental skill for snatching. So we have this wonderful assessment tool that I think people have forgotten where it's come from and there are people that are afraid of snatches. But if, if, if they're done properly and they're not overloaded, you end up actually working through a lot of dysfunction to get to that snatch. So, and by, by the time we get to the snatch, we have athletes with pretty good posture and that doesn't happen in a day. I mean, this is the course of two or three weeks that we're working through this. And I think one of the other things I hear, and this, this is an annoying statement to me, is when I hear people say, ah, oh, the Olympic lifts are just too hard to teach. They're too difficult to teach. And I'm like, well, <clears throat> maybe you should learn how to teach them then because you follow the proper development. And, and we, like I said, we have swimmers across the board that snatch and clean, and we have had zero weight room injuries in, in 15 years. And that goes across all of our sports. We haven't had a single weight room injury. Now we had a kid scrape his forehead with a barbell once and he had to get four stitches, but that's it. That, that, that happens. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I first started um, working in Florida. We, we had a, a director. I'm not going to name names. It was actually our second director. People can do the math. Wanted to argue all the time about how snatching hurts a shoulder. And we've, we never, we've never had a shoulder injury. In fact, in, in the history of our swim team at Florida, we've had really healthy shoulders. You know, swimmers come in with all kinds of junk in their shoulders already. So... I think some of the excuses people you make on the Olympic lifts, if you work yourself back to where it comes from and you've loaded it properly, you're, you've eliminated dysfunction. And that's how I operate with all my teams. I, I want everybody to learn how to snatch and do it well and not get injured doing it. So is that, that's lift one then for you? That's the first that's thing lift one for me because it, it addresses a lot of dysfunction. If you, if you really know what you're looking for, you can address a lot of dysfunction. And, and as they get better, you're like, okay, for example, volleyball players, when they come in the weight room and, and we, we go through our, our trigger point, our stretch, and then our activation work. And then we, we always go into a snatch transfer series and we do this, um, all year round, especially in season. And, and as soon as they get the stick above their head, you can see that if they're right-handed, the stick moves forward on that side because they're hitting a ball all the time and they're, they're tighter on that side. So you kind of see the severity of what their in-season, and I call it necessary dysfunction, looks like. So we can it helps us manage what what we're seeing. So if I see a kid that's really tight, well, we'll start. We'll stretch the pack. We'll stretch their upper trap. We'll stretch their lat. We might do a little extra rotator cuff work on that side with a band. We we'll put the stick above their head. All of a sudden, they're in better alignment. Well, that better alignment isn't just for the weight room. That that transfers into practice later on in the day. And, and this is pretty much how we go about our whole season. And we've, we've had some really healthy shoulders around Florida with volleyball. 
And um, we're knocking on wood, but we've gone five years without an ACL. And before the last ACL, we, ACL, we went five years before that ACL. And, I, you know, I, I think there was a five-year period where we had three matches missed total. You know, yeah. this is elite-level volleyball. Yeah. And so, like last year, we had four matches missed total, one athlete, high ankle sprain. Kid, kid came under the net first weekend. Our kid landed on her foot, sprained her ankle. We missed two matches that weekend, missed two matches the next weekend. Was back in eight days, really. And it was the same, same thing the year before. Kid was out for four matches. She landed on a teammate's foot in practice. So, you know, we, we, we do a really good job managing our athletes. And this isn't just my world. Like our coaches have the vert system, for example. They, they, they're really good about watching jump counts. Our athletic trainer is really good about watching jump counts and also hammering on her end of the, of, of the, of the recovery with those kids. So, I mean, I, I, to me, I, I think what we should be looking for, at least some of the things we should be looking for in terms of evaluating ourselves is are our injury rates at or below the national average for our sport? And are we performing at a high level? And if those you can answer yes to those two questions, you're in the ballpark. I think there's some subjectivity in our in our profession. You know, I, I know that's been a question I've been seeing a lot. How a lot lately is how do you evaluate a strength coach? And to me, those are the first two questions you have to answer. I don't think they're the only questions, but they're for sure they got to be on the on the list of assessments for a strength coach. So I, I, I'm kind of I guess I digress a little bit, but I, I think it's good to understand where the whole the idea come ideas come from. Um, I don't know. Does that answer that question? No, hundred percent. And I want to backtrack a little bit, going back to the lifts. Where are some things that you see people either struggling with as teachers, or maybe even missing the boat completely when it comes to how they instill the lifts with their athletes? I think they overload them too quick. You know, most strength gains over the first year or two are all just an adaptation anyway to the movement. So you don't have to be heavy in order to get stronger and, and, and help it, you, you help you become a better athlete. You know, you look, I look at like, um, um, oh man, my man's name is escaping me right now. Shane Hammond. Okay. Shane Hammond's one of the best American heavyweights ever. Shane Hammond was a power lifter before he went to United States weightlifting guy was a thousand fifty squatter. And for nine months out there, they let that guy use greens on snatches and cleans and jerks. And the day they finally set him loose, he, he, he cleaned, uh, what, 398 pounds, clean and jerk 398 pounds after a whole nine month of just working with greens. So, you know, to me, I've always looked at that example as if you have a strong strength base, because you're not just developing an Olympic lift while you're. While, while you're learning, you're also developing the key movements and you know, like a back squat, a front squat. You're probably doing some overhead pressing. You're doing some rows and pulls. And so you're doing other things that help complement those Olympic lifts. So for me, I, I like to keep the process slow because once you, when you slow cook them and then you finally set them loose, they're technical and they're really strong and resilient. So for me, the biggest mistakes people make, and I think this is why they, they have the excuse of it's, it takes too long to teach is they overload it too quickly. Um, I also think, and just to just my opinion, other people have other takes on it. 
we do a lot of our catching at, at a quarter squat position. You know, every once in a while, I'll have a kid that gets in the hole. Like, I think if you saw Caleb's clean, his first rep, he got in the hole. That was all him. You know, we've been front squatting. We're doing all the other things. And he just, he caught it in the hole. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't teach him that. He literally, normally we teach high catch. I, I, I like, I like catching high. You know, we get our range of motion work through squatting or pulling off the floor. And so if they catch, if they end up catching the hole, it's completely by accident. We didn't teach it. But, you know, if you saw his, if you saw his posture, it was pretty good throughout the whole movement. So we don't promote that. And I think everybody right away is like, oh, you got to catch in a hole. You got to catch in a hole. You got to get deeper. Get into the bar. And I'm like, if if you're catching in a quarter squat for me, one, we're working at a weight that registers to or tr- that, that probably can transfer to their sport because it's not overloaded. Because in order to get you have to get in the hole to catch heavy, heavy weights. Um, and if you saw Caleb's second rep, he caught it in a quarter squat. He just, for whatever reason, he caught the first one in a, in a deep hole, in a, in a hole, in the hole. Um, the quarter squat catch, I think also helps them learn how to absorb force. You know, think of volleyball players. They get a jump land and as they're landing, be changing direction and transitioning off the net. So we, we, we teach a, a catch that might transfer to the court. I'm not saying it does, but. At least the thought process for me is we're catching in a position where we can learn to absorb force and then make make a, a transition off it. No, 100%. So then, since most people are kind of in one of two camps, they're either the weightlifting camp or, or a plyo camp, where do you see jump training fitting in with those three sports? Um, I think it's a combination of things. You know, I, I don't look at just Olympic lifting as the only method of development. We... We jump, we sprint, we do weighted sprints, we do weighted jumps, we do we do Olympic lifting, we do strength training. I mean, to me, it's not one, it's not it's not a one method approach. I think if you spend all your time Olympic lifting, you end up with Olympic lifting type injuries. If you spend all your time jumping, you end up with jumping type injuries. And I think the way we go about it is we do a multifaceted approach where we kind of move the modalities around. So they're never getting over, over, overuse injuries in, in, in that modality. So, and I'm not a, I'm not a, I, I don't like to rabbit hole myself into one method. I mean, I've used, I've used methods of powerlifting in my training. I use methods of Olympic lifting. I use, I, every once in a while I use some hit methods I, I think that it, it depends on what the athlete needs uh, at any given moment. So I, to me, I don't like to cornhole myself or rabbit hole myself mm-hmm. into oh, I'm an Olympic lift guy or I'm a strength guy, I'm a plyo guy. I, I, I think all of it, all of it has value. It just depends on what, what the situation needs. No, 100%. I couldn't agree more. And then looking now, because you also get kind of a pretty good array of level of athletes when it comes to their sport from – you know, your freshmen coming in to, to the Olympians that you're working with, how does their actual sporting level, their, their level of sport mastery impact what they're doing in the weight room with you? Um, it all comes down to the assessment, honestly. Um, the, I, and I can tell you this, the, the kids that are awesome on their court or on the track or 
in the in the on the volleyball court, a lot of them pick up weight room stuff quick. I mean, and that's part of the reason why they're great is just that they their ability to learn is is excellent. So, and, and that's another thing too about Florida is we get a lot of kids that are just motivated. So, our I, I, and, and, you know, some, sometimes your your best player isn't your hardest worker, but I think a lot of our cases, our best athletes are our hardest workers, and they just they're just looking to be great. And uh, so for me, what I see is if they excel in their sport, typically they come in the weight room and they pick things up really quick, and they they use it, they they understand it, they they appreciate the value of it, and they they pick things up pretty quick. And you know, we have freshman walk-ons that, I mean. Get, being a walk-on at Florida is not easy either. I mean, you're surrounded by all these great athletes all the time, and you're watching people excel. And, you know, our freshman walk-ons come in, and they pick things up quick too. So, I mean, there's not a lot of room for not learning what you're supposed to learn when you're supposed to learn it, if that makes if that makes sense. No, 100%, especially when there's a consistent competition between everybody from the top to the bottom. That helps just drive that culture you were talking about even more. So let's let's move on to this then, because we've got a a common interest in in those individuals who wake up at four o'clock in the morning and jump in a box of water for a few hours. Where do you see the the progression and implementation of dryland training going with the aquatic athlete? Well, I think I think a lot of coaches in swimming had been stuck in a old school mentality where dry land was really their weightlifting and a lot of it was high rep and you know as well as I do high rep that usually ends up being bad technique at the towards the middle the end of that and uh, I, I don't think weightlifting really got popular with swimming until like 10 really 10 10 years ago I mean five years in I had finally convinced our coaching staff to let me do some Olympic lifts because they were really skeptical about it. And that started with, with Lochte. You know, Lochte graduated in 06, and he's like, hey, I want to do something different. We started cleaning, and, and then swimmers saw him progress more in the pool, and they were like, hey, we want to try it. And then the coach was like, all right. And then he liked what he saw. And then we had a, we had a girl who was uh, Sarah Bateman. She's a flyer. Swam for Iceland. Ooh. And uh, she's watching our women's vaulters one day do snatches. And she goes, I, I think that would help my fly. Can I try it? And I'm like, yeah, but keep it between you and me. You know, your coaches don't necessarily want you guys snatching, but I'll let you try it. She tried it. She loved it. Then she, she, her times were dropping. And a lot of times people mistake what's causing drops in time. I don't think the snatch is really what helped her drop time. I mean, it didn't hurt her, but around the program, people were watching it like kids. And they're like, I want to try it. And I'm like, all right, so Brett Frazier tried. I'm sorry, Sean. No, Brett Frazier tried it. That year, Brett Frazier goes and wins a 200 free at the net in CWB. And now, all, now Lockie's like, "Hey, I want to do what he's doing." So Lockie started snatching, and then all of a sudden, everybody wanted to snatch. Coach Troy was like, "Yeah, let's try it." Everybody started snatching, and they all end up loving it. And he's coach comes in the morning to the weight room. He's like, I love that movement. I love that movement. 10 years ago, he'd have been like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think that's bad. I think that might hurt our shoulders now. I mean, so to answer the question now, now we're at a point where if I make a comment about certain dryland activities are doing because of the trust we built there, 
they start making adjustments. You know, the only time we really have shoulder pain is when they when they're boxing and the kids are holding punch pads. And well, you know, if they're not being reinforced on how to hold the punch pad, you end up with shoulder pain. I'll be like, hey, coach, can we drop the boxing? Drop the boxing, shoulders feel better. You know, we talk about like hold how to like different activities over there, not double dipping with what we do in the weight room. You know, we like to do a lot of planking in the weight room, and I have a lot of different, a lot of crazy different plank series I like to do. And every once in a while, back in the day, a swim coach would watch it. All of a sudden, they'd be doing it on the pull deck, mm-hmm. but they didn't know how to coach it. And they were doing it for too much time, and his kids' postures were breaking down. And finally, you know, again, with the trust we've built, we, coach, coach, can we can we curtail that and do something different? And we communicate about our dry land now. So now it's more like they used to run three miles almost every day. Last two years, we haven't touched any distance running at all. And and our kids are healthier from just from cutting that activity. And and now I, I'll like I'll, I'll, I add sprints into my program because – so I, coach, I think sprinting is better for these kids. You know, you, you're, you're, you're teaching them how to apply force. And, and I think that's a lot of our, you know, our starts and turns have over the years gotten better. I mean, a lot of the pros after a while didn't, would stop doing the, the, the three-mile runs and would do the sprint program. And I, you know, it's, it's all a progression of everybody talking. What I would like to see is that a lot of swim coaches start to understand that the best dry land training there is is what's happening in the weight room because weight room is a more effective and a more efficient form of dry land. Sets and reps don't have to be sets of 20 to 40 like they were back in the day. Now you can do a squat for three to five reps and get a lot out of it instead of doing sets of 50 on the pull deck between kick sets. So that's where I'd like to see the I'd like to see that progression of dry land turn into something that's more transitional between the weight room and the pool where maybe they're doing more band band work that's related to a stroke where with their coaches watching that because their coaches understand their strokes more or, or on the VASA or, or things along that nature that are transitioning the work from the weight room to the pool. That's where I'd like to see Dryland get to. Oh no, a hundred percent, you know, and, and working with a youth club too, I've seen the hour long med ball circuits that yeah. are, yeah, that's, uh, that we have now curtailed to a point where we actually can start to teach them how to at least do some foundational stuff in the weight room because it's 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 insane to me to look at some of the stuff that they used to do and it's just like good grief like the squats with the pronation and the valgus just over and over and over again i mean i you know swimming shouldn't be a sport where you have a lot of knee injuries and I, we, we, early on we had knee pain and they were like, Oh, it's gotta be the squats in the weight room. I'm like, no, it's not. It's the squats on the pool deck that you're doing over and over and over again with really bad technique. I mean, that's where we're getting our knee pain from. And once we started cutting those type of activities out, knee pain went away. So it's hard to ignore that. No doubt. And you, and they always have loved doing tens of hundreds of jumps with kids who like, can hardly sit down on the toilet without having exactly. their knees touch each other. Exactly, which ends up, I mean, it makes them inefficient off the walls. I mean, whew, it's a, I mean, and that's hard too. When when you have a when you have a dryland program that's not coached properly, you see it in the weight room, and that's another reason why I think with that sport, you're just 
slow cooking them is the best way to get about it because they're coming in with a lot of bad movements on their body just from dry, high school dryland and club dryland. No, a hundred percent. So then, let let's finish it out here, Matt. Where do you, as a coach, looking at all of these things, if if you were to wave a magic wand, where is one thing that you feel we as a profession could be doing things better? Looking at it with that vast array of, of I mean, from you know, really good to the best in the world right now, athletes that you work with. What could we as a profession do better for the kids and the, the men and women we work with? I, I tell my I tell our interns this all the time. If what we're doing in the weight room is stealing from their sport, we're doing the wrong things. And I think if you look across the board in coll- collegiate strength and conditioning, I think a lot of times we get these high-level athletes and they can do a lot of crazy things. Like they're they're amazing athletes. And and I think sometimes people get greedy with what they do with those athletes in the weight room. Like, oh my God, so and so squatted six six seventy seven hundred pounds. And when I was younger, I I, I fell into that a little bit. Everybody did, but over time, I've I've learned, and I think that there are appropriate levels of strength, for example, for athletes. You know, and and after a certain point, you're you're getting diminishing returns on it. And I think so in our field. I I really like to see us kind of understand that we, we we need to be living in the middle a little bit in that Goldilocks zone where it's not too light, it's not too heavy, it's just 65 to 85% and kids are healthy and they're performing well and, and, and we understand and appreciate that we're not the reason why. Because I, I see a lot of people take credit for performances and it's not us. You know, that kid has to do the work they have to go into that pool or on the track or on the court or on the mat. And they're the one that has to put it on the line. And we shouldn't be taking credit for what they're doing. And if you're not taking credit for it, I think that takes pressure off of, of some of the anxieties that we might have when we're training them. Like, Oh my God, we got to get them stronger. We got to do this. And then you're also able to talk your coaches off the ledge a little bit more with that too. So blanket approach across the board, don't steal from them in the weight room. Yeah, no, and that's an absolutely killer point and a, and a great spot to leave it at, Coach. Matt, I, I can't thank you enough for spending the time with us today. This is a killer talk, man. I really do appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure, Jason. I appreciate everything you do for our, our profession. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much. We'll be in touch real soon, my friend. Thank you. Sounds good, my man. Yep, bye-bye. And a huge thanks to University of Florida's Assistant Director of Strength and Conditioning, Matt Delancey, for spending the time with us today. Guys, I mean, open, honest, candid, what more can we ask for? You know, a guy who's just out there giving you everything he's doing, how he's doing it, how he's building things, what he's looking at, absolutely fantastic stuff. I cannot thank Matt enough for being so candid and open with us today. Absolutely fantastic. I really do hope you guys enjoyed the discussion. And as always, if you did, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. Just remember, guys, we're just trying to get great information out to all the coaches out there. And we greatly appreciate everything that you guys do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back here next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.